It's a blessing to be here with you all this morning and worship with you. Trust that as we look into the word that um, God's name will be glorified and as we continue our worship, um, appreciated the Sunday school lesson as we looked at that and discussed varied issues that uh, affect us all, really. A hundred years ago, the nation was a couple years into a constitutional amendment that ultimately failed and was repealed at a later date. And it was the 18th Amendment, and it prohibited the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquids. And my understanding is that it was ratified late in uh, 1918 and was put into effect maybe in January of 1919, and that it it was in existence till 1933, in which time it was repealed through the 21st Amendment, maybe, which passed off the jurisdiction of alcoholic beverages to the states. And of course, the effect of it was that most places it could be sold. And so um, this morning I'm going to preach about temperance as it relates to alcohol. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, it's been a part of our life and you know, I've had a couple of people tell me, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon on alcohol. And, you know, it's, it's so ingrained, but yet it needs to be talked about, I think, in our day to maintain the perspective that we have on it. Um, thinking about this, you know, consider where we're at as a nation with the free availability of alcohol. Just anywhere you go, as the, in a store, it's pretty well there. And... Uh, you know, and available any place, and the nation's getting fuzzy on marijuana, and, you know, there's a lot of things happening, and, but consider that a hundred years ago, it was illegal to sell or use or transport alcohol, and so we've come a long ways, and I'll talk about that a little later. Uh, thinking about strong drink, it has a hook in it, a little bit can make a person a little freer and happier maybe, and, but yet a little bit more, and it will destroy a person. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 9 for uh, the first instance of drunkenness in the Bible. And, you know, our good Saint Noah, the one that obeyed God and built an ark and uh, resisted the more cultural mores of society and um, you know, we were up at the Ark not so long ago in Kentucky, and, you know, they had those presentations up there in which a reporter came by and interviewed Noah, and, you know, the scorn was just so real, and I'm sure it happened. You know, what are you doing out here building this Ark? Well, this was Noah, but here in chapter, chapter 9 of Genesis, verse 20, and Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and was, uh, he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant, and God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And so, as we think about this little episode here, and our, as I said, good godly Noah, 
ended up and drank some fermented wine and became drunken. And think about the fallout from this uh, thing that happened here. Nothing good came out of it. You know, um, he compromised himself because he wasn't fully in his right mind with the effect of the alcohol that was in his system. And his one son ended up with a curse. And, you know, just a lot of negativity came from this episode here through the use of strong drink. The first item we'd like to look at this morning is a bit of history, alcohol in America. And so think back um, many years, in the 17 and 1800s, many immigrants came to America from Europe. You know, when I was a boy in school, we talked about the great American melting pot and, you know, the Italians and the Germans and the French and the English and many other places, probably Spanish, came to America and, you know, most of them were used to consumption of alcohol in the lands they came from. And most of these immigrants, if not all, dreamed of a better life in America, you know, free land to be had for the taking if you could accomplish the settlement of it. And, um, you know, for some it was religious freedoms, and uh, probably a lot of our forebears were in that category. But they dreamed of a better life in America. But for many of them, Life was hard as they tried to get established here in this new world. You know, on the frontiers, they eked out a living and things came into their experience that they weren't accustomed to, or maybe Indians, or whatever the case might have been. And there was a goodly number of these immigrants and ended up city in cities and became low-paid factory workers. And as history would tell us, a lot of them turned to alcohol to salve the problems and the suffering that they were experiencing. And as they turned to alcohol, money that was needed from their poor wages to start with to supply the needs of their family was consumed up in buying these drinks. And so that made problems in their families. And then, of course, as they drank and became drunken, why there's harshness and meanness that went along with that. And so a lot of problems came into um, their experience. So for a statistic, they say that in 1830, there was three times the alcohol per person consumed in America as what there presently is. And so think about what you would know about your neighbors and acquaintances and such like and the woes of life that comes with that and multiply that by three. And that's where America was in the early to mid-1800s. And so to counter this, there were societies that were formed in America, temperance societies, and they urged the restraint of alcohol consumption and warned about the destructive consequences of alcohol. And eventually these groups came to the point where they began to push for total abstinence and what we would call being a teetotaler, in other words, and that's what we would be, just totally avoiding alcohol. And the work of these groups led to the outlawing of alcohol in America. And just think about what you know about American society today. Would it be possible for a groundswell movement to rise up and do something of this significance, where there was three times the alcohol consumed that there is consumed today, and that they could pull together and form government uh, legislation that would outlaw it? Uh, you know, it just seems foreign to us, but that's where it was, and that's what happened. And So in 1933 then, the amendment was repealed because it was difficult to enforce and they realized that you can't legislate morality. And so, you know, it happened. 
And so as I thought about it, you know, in 1933, I was born in 1959, and so in the mid-60s I can remember things. So that was only 30 couple years prior to my earliest memories that alcohol was uh, legalized, so to speak. And so, uh, you know, that's not very far. That's not very long looking at it in a perspective now at this stage in life. Uh, so it's about 90 years now, 1933 to 2023, that alcohol can be sold. And in my limited lifetime, there have been a lot of changes in the rules regulating the sale of alcohol. You know, I can remember, that, and as I said earlier, the, new, the 21st Amendment passes off to states to legislate about alcohol. And so I have a very limited perspective in the state that I live in. But, you know, there was a time that alcohol couldn't be sold on Sunday. And then they passed the ruling that you couldn't sell it before noon on Sunday. And finally, I, I believe it's just gone altogether. It's just available that you can sell it at any time. And as the rules on selling alcohol have relaxed, so have the ways that it's offered. Um, you know, I was in a store not so long ago, a while back, that I saw hard iced tea. And I, I said, I can't believe this, but it was alcoholic iced tea. And there's a store over here, a 278, coming into before, um, Georgia before you get to the river. A little store there that has a McDonald's in it. They offer alcoholic ice cream in a cooler there, right inside the front door. Um, and I saw a number of times, and I saw it again last night on the local BP station, coming soon, Mountain Dew Hard. And I don't know when it'll be available. That sign has been out there off and on for a good while now. But, you know, uh, alcohol mixed into Mountain Dew. And so um, did you ever stop to think why soda pop is called soft drink? It's because it's soft. It's non-alcoholic. It's not a hard drink like hard liquor. But Mountain Dew hard is alcoholic. And... Um, also, um, you know, there's a brand called Dad's Root Beer, and I don't know that it's sold in our area, at least I haven't seen it, but it's apparently a national brand. It's pretty broadly accepted. And there, I've seen an ad for Not Your Father's Root Beer, and it would be alcoholic root beer. And so there is a lot of changes happening in the way alcohol is uh, being offered, and it's becoming more subtle and mixed with things that we would commonly used. And so how does this affect us? In Proverbs it said that wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And so I think that this could apply to drugs too. You know, America is losing the war on drugs. Um, marijuana is being legalized in more and more uh, states. And so as the mores of society move back to less and less restriction and more and more acceptance. Where are we in the midst of all this? Are we doomed to just follow along? Where do we stand? And that's the question that I would like us to look at this morning. So I've looked at alcohol in America. Now I'd like to look at Mennonites and alcohol. You know, the early Anabaptists took a stand against alcohol consumption. Um, in 1525, the Swiss Brethren met in a room and baptized each other, and that was the formal uh, beginning of the Anabaptist group, uh, per se. 
And in 15, either 27 or 28, they put out the slight time confession. In other words, as they worked for a few years, things were kind of coming to question, you know, what about this and what about that? And a group of brethren met, and it was their first confession. And as part of that, so just a couple years into their existence, as part of that, uh, the slight time confession forbid the patronage of drinking places. And then in 1560, which would have been, you know, 20 or 30 years later, Heinrich Bullinger, a state churchman, wrote about the Anabaptists that they drank only sweet cider and water. You know, we can learn a lot about the Anabaptists by the writings of the state churchmen. They, they kept detailed records, and they uh, said things about the Anabaptists oftentimes in condemnation, but yet it t- tells us where they were at and what they were doing. Um, you know, these... Um, Let's turn to Proverbs 23. These Anabaptists were living by the guidelines of Proverbs here. And Proverbs 23, beginning to read in verse 31. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. And it's talking about grape juice that has become alcoholic. Said, don't look at it in that state. In other words, the the implication is that if you mess with alcoholic grape juice, that you're headed for trouble. It'll bite like a snake. Um, So this state church man said that they, the Anabaptists drink only sweet cider and water, and said they lived by this principle. They didn't want to mess with the alcoholic side. Another writer told how that Anabaptists often were identified because they refused to drink to the health of the other guests in an inn. And so, you know, think about what you know about inns in early America and how, you know, today we go and we get our meal wherever. Maybe if we need out somewhere and need to get a room, we'll buy a motel and go there. But in the older, older days, they would have an inn that had a common large room underneath and the proprietor provided the, ev- the evening meal, the stagecoach or whatever would come in and you get your evening meal in the company of all the occupants of the inn and then you would retire for the night to your room. And apparently in those uh, 1500s back in Switzerland, they, there was a common practice I would take to maybe pass the cups out to everybody and pour a little bit of alcohol and they would clink glasses and drink to the health of the other occupants of the inn for the night. And these Anabaptists, it said, were identified, and there were some that were arrested because they declined that procedure. Say, oh, you're an Anabaptist. And uh, they said, and I believe the Martyr's Mirror tells, there was one man that was arrested and he lost his life due to that arrest, and his beginning of his uh, incarceration was because he declined to drink alcohol in the inn. And another early, early Anabaptist wrote, the strong drink is evil at the root, no matter how it is done. Liquors are, and continuing on, liquors are the invention of the devil to catch men, drawing them into his net, making them cleave to him and forsake God and leading them into all sins. Therefore, one should flee from it as from the face of a serpent. And apparently the reference would have been this verse 32 here in Proverbs chapter 23. So these were, these were strong statements following the teaching of Proverbs 20, verse 1, where it says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. And so, um, 
Um, let me go to that. It's just Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And so strong drink has a hook in it. A little bit can loosen you up and make you feel better for a little bit, but a little bit more, and it destroys your life. So we have the history of the Anabaptists, but nevertheless, as time went on, Mennonites began to dabble in alcohol. And as they relocated to America, some of Mennonites' settlers made and used alcohol. And it's an unfortunate time in the history of our church, but that, that is the facts as they were. But in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, to use the words of Harold Bender, a Mennonite teacher from the mid-1900s, there was a great awakening in the Mennonite church. And the level of spirituality and consistent living greatly increased among Mennonite, many Mennonites. And the Mennonite Encyclopedia says that, and so dovetail this with what was happening in America that I described earlier, the temperance movement. And so, you know, as Christian people to, you know, if you're unchristian neighbors or Lutherans or whatever they might have been, were saying, you know, building up a uh, conscience against alcohol, why it would have been totally foolish for the Mennonites to thumb their nose at all that. And so the same thing was taking place within the Mennonite church. There was a conscience being aroused against the use of alcohol. And then... The, to quote the Mennonite Encyclopedia, the American temperance and total abstinence movement was beginning to take root in Mennonite minds as a whole generation was raised on Sunday school temperance lessons and as American groups taught against alcohol and saloons. And so in 1955, at the, writing, at the time of the writing of the Mennonite Encyclopedia, they said the pattern of total abstinence has become thoroughly established among American Mennonites of all branches, many of whom today would not knowingly tolerate among their membership the drinking of alcoholic beverages. And so that was the stage in 1955, uh, about 80 years ago. So we'll pick up some more of the Mennonite story after a while here. Next, I would like to look at the biblical principles. You know, we've looked at alcoholism in America. We looked at the, some brief history of Anabaptists and Mennonites in, with alcohol. And now we'd like to look at the biblical principles. Let's turn to Proverbs 23. And I read a couple of verses out of the middle of this section a while ago. And I'd like to read it, a, a longer passage of it now. beginning to read in verse 19 of Proverbs 23. Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among, among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Hearken unto thy father that begat thee, and despise not thy mother when she is old. Buy the truth and sell it not, also wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begetteth the wise child shall have joy of him. Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bare thee shall rejoice. My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways. For a whore is as a deep ditch, and a strange woman as a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey, and increaseth the transgressors among men. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? 
Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? And then the saddest commentary of it all, I will seek it yet again. So as we look at this passage, we see here um, that a wise person avoids those that use wine. It's in verse 20, be not among the ones that um, go out and party and use wine and um, riotous eaters of flesh, it says. In other words, it's describing a party, party that is involved with alcoholic use. And this passage talks about immorality and alcohol together. And, you know, often fornication or um, some sort of adultery or immorality goes along with the use of strong drink. It loosens the inhibitions of a person. You know, there's a local farm family there that about 25 years ago had a daughter that was involved with another man at a party one late Friday night. And... He was lamenting over it. In fact, they said that she was mortified after she came back. To, you know, she was drunk, and that she would have never had any involvement with that particular man if she'd have been in her right mind. But that's what happens. Uh, get a little wine in you and alcohol in your system, and maybe a little more after you lose the inhibition of at that level. Uh, lust after women and foolishly get into fights. Wake up in the morning, it talks about here, with a bruised face, a black eye, and yet seek after it again. Alcohol has a hook, and some people can't stop with just a moderate amount. Let's turn to the 31st proverb, and we'll read here the instruction of a mother passing on good teaching. Beginning to read in verse, well, let me give it beginning in verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. What, my son, and what, the son of my womb, and what, the son of my vows? Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. And look, look at the reasoning given. Lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. And so this mother was giving her king, King Lemuel, her son, King Lemuel, instruction here and saying that, you know, you're in a place of responsibility and you need clear thinking. And the person who gets the messing in alcohol has their thinking messed up and you can't judge properly and you can't carry out your responsibilities as you ought to. Said, you'll forget the law and pervert the judgment of those that are afflicted under your care. And so we have this uh, mother here that was passing on this good teaching. Be careful morally and don't drink strong drink. Now let's turn to Isaiah 28. And you know, God um, started his people with the man Abraham. And it says someplace that I didn't choose you because you were great in number and um, somebody special, but I chose you because, in essence, you were a nobody 
and I could create something that would glorify me in the face of the earth that came from next to nothing, you might say. But God had a plan for the nation Israel that they would glorify him and that they would set up a group of people on the earth that could show God's purposes to the surrounding nations. And But look here in Isaiah 28, verse 7, just a sick, sad commentary. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. And notice why, what they were doing. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. Think back a moment to what I read about King Lemuel's mother. said, um, you need to avoid strong drink so that you can maintain good judgments and protect those that are oppressed within your kingdom. And here it says, they err in vision and they stumble in judgment. And it's so sad, you know, this group of people that God established to glorify himself. And here's the spiritual leaders within that group, the ones that were to be providing the vision and saying, here's a word from the Lord. They got messed up with strong drink and they, all they cared about, as, as it said back there in one passage in Proverbs, where can I find another drink? They were messed up, and it's, a, it's serious, and it's sad, and it's so unfortunate. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 10, and we notice what um, God's instruction and will was for the priests. You know, as I said, these were the spiritual leaders, the ones that God has uh, established through the Old Testament law in the time of Moses. You know, the group of the children of Israel started out the patriarch Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and led on up through. And at the time of Moses, then he formalized things and he gave Moses the Old Testament law, beginning with the Ten Commandments and then all the... of Leviticus, it gives us instructions that God gave to Moses, and Moses write down, wrote down to regulate this people. They became an organized group, and they had rules written down. And here um, in Leviticus 10, beginning to read in verse 8, And the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Drink not wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. And here again, it gives reasoning that ye may put difference between the holy and unholy and between unclean and clean, and that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord hath spoken them by the hand of Moses. Here again, we've got these two principles of vision and judgment. Stay away from strong drinks so that you can maintain vision and make proper judgments. Put a difference between holy and unholy, unclean and clean, and so that you can teach all the statutes. As I said, it's talking about vision and judgment, and it gets impaired by strong drink. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Beginning to read in verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Flipping into the New Testament now thinking about the analogy of the Old Testament priest and operating within the camp of the people of God and us as New Testament believers. Um, 
Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." Thinking about we in the New Testament age, we believe in a priesthood of believers, and it's based on passages such as this. And there's another passage or two, and I want to look at one, at least one of those later here. Uh, you know, we have a privileged status as heirs of the kingdom of God. Uh, we're called to be kings and priests and a royal priesthood. We have a privileged closeness to God that pe people prior to the cross didn't have, that of direct access to God. You know, they had the priesthood in the Old Testament in which they went there and the priests would offer sacrifices for their sins. You know, it tells us in Hebrews that we can have boldly approached the throne of God directly, but that gives us priest stat, priesthood status. It says here, um, we are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices unto God. You know, in Psalm 51, it says, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, or a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. You know, priests offer sacrifices, but we don't need that intermediary. We are the priest ourselves, so to speak, the priesthood of the believers. We, as New Testament people, can approach directly to God. And, you know, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So we are a priest. We are in the position of the priest that offers sacrifices. And as we looked a little bit ago in the Old Testament, the priests were asked to avoid alcohol while they were in their priestly duties. And the reason listed was so that they could maintain a clear mind to keep a distinction between the holy and the unholy and the clean and the unclean. You know, as New Testament priests, it requires all the clear thinking that we can muster to navigate what we should be doing here in this ungodly society and to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit as he guides us in building a spiritual house and endeavoring to offer our bodies as living sacrifice. The Old Testament priests were not to drink any strong drink when approaching God. And King Lemuel's mom said, it's not for kings to drink strong drink. Now let's turn to Revelation chapter 1, this other passage that talks about us being priests. Revelation chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, 
and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and, hath wa and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here it says that Jesus came and made us kings and priests to God. And so we are in that position as God's people um, and as New Testament kings and priests that we do well to avoid strong drink that mocks and rages. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. As I said earlier, um, there's things that accompany the drinking of alcohol, and it's looseness and lewdness and immorality. Beginning to read here in verse 1, Ephesians chapter 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepeth, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit." I'm going to leave off reading there. In verse 4, it talks about filthiness and foolish talking and jesting. Um, you know, I've never been, thank God, in the presence of a group of people that were drinking alcohol and their blood content was rising. But as I would understand it, this is the type of activity that goes on. As they drink and their inhibitions get lowered, that they, they start jesting, and a lot of it is sexually tainted as I would understand that's the way the, that's the way it goes um, you know they get impaired by alcohol they start turning to the acts of wickedness that's what they talk about and eventually get involved in it but then it talks here about the traits of the spirit-filled life in verse 9 it's in all goodness and righteousness and truth and it talks about those traits and then um, dropping down to 18, it says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. And, you know, I think that is saying that people that drink wine, it leads to excesses. Um, don't get involved with alcoholic drinks because it will lead to excesses in, the, in your conduct. And it lists here, um, you know, wine versus the spirit lifted, listed together as opposites of each other it said don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the spirit and so you know there are 
two opposing forces that can apply influence in our life. The Spirit of God that can lift us toward God and holiness and thoughtful living and biblical um, evaluation and making right choices, or wine that pulls us the other directions, lowers our inhibitions. And so it lists them together here, I believe, on purpose. They are two opposing forces that apply influence on a person's life. Wine that lowers inhibitions, or the Holy Spirit of God that raises us to greater awareness of what is right and wrong. And in verses 19 and 20 here, um, well, let me... Um, you know, it tells us in Psalms that wine gladdens the heart of man. And I've mentioned that earlier, how that a little bit actually makes you happier and more freer, even though I've never experienced that. Um, but look here in verse 19 and 20, what the Spirit does for us. Speaking to yourselves in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so is that gladdening? It is to me, yeah, it's something to rejoice over. The Spirit of God can work within us things that are joyous and joyful as well, and it's in a positive way. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Beginning to read in verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he should no longer that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lascivious lust, lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wherefore, they think it strange that they, you, run, you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. You know, many of us have been restrained in our lives in our youthful years. We didn't experience some of this, thank God. But there are those that are brought out of a life of debauchery. And I have a brother-in-law that was such that grew up in a divorced home and grew up around alcohol and immorality and other things. And God spared him from that, thank God, through a Mennonite family that started bringing a little young boy to Sunday school. Thank God. But many of us have not have that experience, but it's talking here about the carnal way of life. And, you know, for many of us, we just don't know much about this other than what we observe from acquaintances and neighbors and such like. Um, but, you know, we still, at, at the time in which we yielded our lives to God and started living by our conscience, prior to that time, we were mostly living under restraint, you might say. But he lists here a catalog of ugly sins that happen to those that are living outside of God's grace. Excess of wine, an excess of riot, um, excesses that come from strong drink is part of the equation. And then flipping to verse seven, um, it gives the evaluation. It says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. I did some research on drunkenness and it says, 
at a blood alcohol level of 0 0.08, you're considered, considered legally drink or drunk. I'm sorry. At a 0 0.08 alcohol level, you is a legal consideration of being drunk. And said if you would drink a 12 ounce can of beer or a four ounce shot of whiskey or um, wine, which has about the same alcohol content, you would have a blood alcohol level of about 0 0.02. And of course that varies with the person's age and size and some other factors. But even at that level, there is some reduction in reasoning abilities and reaction times. But think about this verse seven here. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And so, you know, I think as Christian people that even a little wine is probably a negative in our life. Um, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul advised Timothy to use a little wine for your stomach's sake. And, you know, some people use that as justification for social drinking. Um, but you know, the word wine in the scripture is used for several different things, four different ways, and I'm not going to elaborate on all four of them here this morning, but one of them would be a hard alcoholic drink, as I say there in Proverbs, when it's red and fizzes in the cup. And the other would be for fresh, sweet grape juice. And so we don't know for sure what he was advising Timothy to take here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But, you know, in our day, as far as stomach issues, we've got a drugstore that we can go to. And there's a whole shelf full of antiacids and you name it in there that we can take to solve those type of problems. And I think that with all the negatives associated with alcohol, we can certainly find other ways to deal with our problems. Uh, tagament, you might, uh, was one drug that one neighbor of ours was taking for uh, stomach ulcers or whatever. And some further research, how does alcoholism start? How does a drunk get that way? And it's through taking a few small drinks in a social setting off times. Um, and so social drinking is the gateway that leads some into drunkenness. Um, and in Romans chapter 14, it says, It is good neither to eat flesh or drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumb is stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. And so I repeat that alcoholisms, the ones that are Drunks, pure, full-blown drunks, start that way by taking a few small drinks, maybe in a social setting. And a statistic, 8% of the American adults are addicted to alcohol, and 5% are experiencing serious consequences in their life because of alcohol. And so think, nearly 1 in 10, 1 in 12 is an alcoholic in America. And it leads to relationship problems and fights and divorces and lost jobs and financial problems and serious health implications. Al alcohol abuse starts as a very subtle thing, a drink here and a drink there. And some people, for a variety of reasons, move from an occasional social drinker to someone who has an abuse problem. And so to justify social drinking in our day with the knowledge that we have, that certainly certain people are easily ensnared with this problem, it doesn't seem wise. You know, 100 to 120 years ago, our spiritual forebears had the foresight 
and realize through hard experiences that this was the fact, that some people end up as drunkards when there's wine available and free to all. And the solution was that we'll become teetotalers. We will avoid alcohol totally. And it's been a blessing to us down through the years. Um, each of us that are members, as a reminder, have made a commitment that we will abstain from alcohol as part of our church commitment. And so I'd like to look now in the fourth place, we looked at alcohol use in America, alcohol among Mennonites from 1955 back, and then the scriptural principles. And in the fourth, fourth place I would like to look at is current Mennonites and strong drink. As I already stated in 1955, it said, American Conference Mennonites as a whole are firmly set in their opposition to alcoholic drinking in any form. And unfortunately, this has been changing. Uh, in the years following 1955, there was a lot of change that came to the Mennonite church. Um, not so many years after, in the 60s and 70s, revival groups began to withdraw from the main conferences because of a loss of biblical practice. And our group is one of those that withdrew. And I did some research to find out the ones that we left behind, where are they at? And the most recent published study that I could find was printed in 2011, and it stated that at that time, 26% of the members of the Mennonite Church USA considered alcohol use wrong. And so what that is saying, that 74% of the Mennonite Church USA, and this is 10, 15 years ago, were okay with the use of alcohol. In fact, there was an article printed in a Mennonite publication that some of us would be familiar with, that talked about a family that started a home brewery for their own use and for sale, and it was presented in a positive way. And so that's where the, that group was at. But then on the other side, what about those of us that withdrew? Um, you know, there was that large grouping of conference Mennonites that had existed since the late 1800s when the Old Order groups formed. And when the, the mid to late 1900s, then the revival groups pulled out of the conference churches. And just to name them, many of these names, all these names probably you would be familiar with, Nationwide Fellowship and Eastern PA and Pilgrims and Southeasterns and Mid-Atlantic and Midwest and South Atlantic and BMA and Keystone and Charity. And then there have been many independent churches that have formed as well. And so um, on the question of strong drink, we find you might say acceptance in the large group we came from. And, but what about the groups that have formed that we are a part of, um, you know, including all the little independent congregations? Uh, where are we at on, all of, on the question of alcohol? And you know, we, I believe, still have a strong stand against it. As far as I know, we are good. But we have heard reports that of some of the youth that come to Heritage Bible School, and part of some at least, that they would have no problem with the social drinking of alcohol. And so for all of us, youth in particular, think about the consequences of strong drink. Social drinking is a snare, and some become drunkards. And, you know, it's important that we think this through and make it part of our personal commitment, not just that it's on the church books and you know, that's, that's what they say, that's where they say we're at. And um, you know, I had one youth from our church that asked me recently and I, I would have thought they would have known. They said, why is it that we don't 
uh, partake of strong drinks, that it doesn't expressly forbid it in the Bible. And that's true, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, but th thinking about this, there are biblical principles and good solid reasons to completely avoid the use of strong drink, even though the scripture does not totally command, directly command total abstinence. And I might lump in with that mind-altering drugs as well. You know, where moderate use is accepted, some people uh, turn, move on and become drunkards, and by this, lives are ensnared and destroyed. And so abstinence and total avoidance of the use of these substances will help us to maintain a consistent testimony, avoiding offense and potentially causing other believers to sin. So I encourage you as parents to work on this on your children and teach this principle firmly and often. In closing then, King Lemuel's mother told him, it's not for kings or princes, O King Lemuel, to drink wine or strong drink. If they drink, they will forget the law and pervert judgment. Fast forward several thousand years, and my mother, a rather forthright woman, said expressive woman, told me, don't mess with it, never touch it, if you never start, you'll never need to quit. And so, good instruction for us all. Let's have a song.